Sans Pants Radio, Australia's least coherent podcast network. listening to Total Reboot, the only podcast on the internet that discusses film and cinema. And this week on the podcast, let me tell you this, brother, for a couple of bucks, we're talking about the classics. Uh, my name is Alexis Toliopoulos, and joining me as always is my dearest friend on this mission through magic. <laughs> <laughs> it's Cameron James. Oh God! Why didn't we name this podcast "Mission Through Magic"? Oh uh, God, we should write a screenplay called "Mission Through Magic." I know exactly what it's about. It's mm-hmm. about a, it's a, f- a ragtag group of soldiers in okay. the war who I'm discover excited. that they are witches. <laughs> And they decide that to... It's a coincidence that they've all yeah, met up. There's not like witches. some curse there. Governor's like, no, we're, we're, hang on a second. Are you a witch too? Did yeah, you just say Al Greco-Babra? That's actually what I say when I'm doing magic as well. Hang on, did you just say you do magic? Whoops. Yeah, I guess we're all magic now. Anyway, they all do... It okay. turns out they all do amazing magic tricks and yep. then they solve the war. Congratulations, World War. <laughs> we didn't say what war it was, did we? So it could be any war. And it, they solve it. They don't yeah. win it. They solve it. Like, well... So, yeah, I guess Hitler was the one up to all the bad stuff. <laughs> well, anyway, see you all. <laughs> Mission through magic. Cameron, I would love to wish you on this day mm. a very Marty Christmas. Thank you very much. And a Scorsese New Year. Okay, you. that's good. That's yeah. good. A Scorsese New Year. We're in the middle of our Marty Christmas uh, special event. We've been talking all about the bushy eyebrowed one himself. And mm-hmm. no, not Eugene Levy. Yeah, the bushy eyebrowed Buddha is what we call him. <laughs> what have we gone through so far? We kick things off by talking about one of the... A movie that I would say is so in our DNA yeah. that we found challenging to talk about, mm-hmm. but have appreciated everyone saying how much they enjoyed that episode. We talked about Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. Yeah. Of course, based on what? Based on a really good guy. Really good fella. Okay, that's... I think you misunderstood the movie. Oh, uh, what? You're the why. You, people like you are the reason people say Wolf of Wall Street was cool. Oh, it was cool. That made me want to do lewds <laughs> so bad, dude. You got looted up, dude. I wanted to do lewds and crawl around. <laughs> But it's based uh, on the book Wise Guy yes. by Nicholas Pileggi, which led us to something else. It led us to a Nora Ephron light comedy mob drama mm. called My Blue Heaven, which is based on the exact same book, mm-hmm. which are uh, both uh, accounts of the life of Henry Hill, a mobster who then went into the witness protection program. Yeah. So it was weird. It's weird. It's it's endlessly fascinating that that yep. exists, and you know, it was a great way for us to finally talk about someone that we really 
uh, you and I, and also I guess Bebaba Skirla on that episode, mm. uh, really consider an icon and a hero and someone to look up to as far as screenwriting and directing comedy goes, yeah. Nora Ephron. Absolutely. Because, you know, most of the stuff that she's done is original work, and on this podcast, unfortunately, that's not what we always talk about, so we don't always get to talk about our heroes like that. However, the week after that, we broke that code. We broke Ometa. We broke the Ometa, and we just cast a film that's not based on a pre-existing film or TV series property. And can I just... I want to paint a picture to all our listeners now. Well, I hear what you paint happened. houses, so you might paint a beautiful picture yeah, for Yeah, I this. hear you paint pictures <laughs> <laughs> with words through the audio medium of podcasting. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's a good podcast title yeah, for us, too. I hear you paint pictures through the audio medium of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> so, when Alexi and I broke the reboot Omerta, it was really, really horrific stuff. We mm. walked into Blu-ray Studios... Mm-hmm. Getting ready to record a pod, expecting, you know, just it would be a normal day. We walked in, immediately noticed that all the Blu-rays were stripped from the shelves (laughs) and replaced with DVDs. And that's when we knew we were going to get hit. We went back in time to the days of Blank Slate. Where DVD culture was preeminent and Blu-rays were both a tinkle in my papa's dinkle. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it was exciting to do The Irishman because... Yeah, it was a three and a half hour long movie that mm-hmm. we managed to condense our thoughts and feelings into Two. roughly an hour and a bit. An hour and change, and maybe even six then, hours worth. And even the conversation has not ended mm. on our Facebook group. Yep. It's still ongoing with people catching up with that movie, mm. chiming in with their opinions. I've reassessed some of my feelings yep. towards it. I don't know if you have as well, but it's a... It's an evolution. It's an evolution. And it was exciting. The very next day after we recorded that episode, uh, we went to see Jojo Rabbits, yeah. uh, which is the new film for Taika Waititi. And we caught up with Levens there, who's been on this podcast numerous times, and Jason DeRosso, who's a film critic mm. for ABC Radio National. And he was like, hang- we were all hanging out, four boys up in the back of the cinema, talking mm. about The Irishman. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> it was, funny. It was great. <laughs> Especially that, like, me and DeRosso were just, like, fully going, like, yeah, the metatextual context of all this stuff. And, like, really, like, we'd sold each other on this theory that it's all the metatextual <laughs> yeah, element. Yeah. And then you're just going, you guys are psychos. Yeah. <laughs> you pacing around us, too. Yeah, I was... I was angry at um, the fact that Jason DeRosso was mm. had the same thoughts that you have, mm. which is I that it's okay his that the CGI yes. is not perfect. Yes. And you guys were both saying, yeah, it's fine because you're supposed to see like the age on these guys mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And I was furious at yeah. this. <laughs> you were maddened. You were maddened that someone that we respect was, was legitimizing you. my yeah. insane opinion. I was. And then I got even more annoyed when you said you were going to go see it for a fifth time. And you wouldn't let me. I wouldn't let and you. And I didn't do it. Good. I, I was so I angry. Didn't do it. I didn't even watch it at home instead. I even suggested you go outside and go for a walk, which is, uh, at you know, I'm sorry to put a timestamp on where we mm. are right now historically, but a bad idea <laughs> considering Sydney is caked in smoke right now. Yeah. Sydney is 11 times hazardous level. Yes. So air, air toxicity levels are an all time high. You basically high. told me, how about instead of watching the Irishman, you go take a long walk off a short yeah. fucking pier. Go choke, buddy. Yeah. Go choke. Got it. <laughs> So we talked about The Irishman. It was a wonderful conversation. There's still stuff that we didn't even talk about that I think was great in that movie. One thing that I remember you and I wanted to talk about, and I don't know if we did, was how every time we're introduced to a new character in that film, uh, a lot of the times... uh, 
a, a thing would pop up on the screen, a little title saying mm. their name, uh, when they died, the date they died, how they died, where they died. Yeah, I forgot about that. And I think that was such a... That's so key in understanding how this film is like truly about mortality, how you're mm. in this world and there's only one way out, bucko, yeah. and that's through those pearly gates up into heaven. And you're often, <laughs> you're often meeting these people mm. as they get their title card. It's in the middle of a very mm. heated, life-filled mm. moment. Yeah. They're often laughing. It's a freeze frame on them laughing or yeah. having a heated argument. It's someone at their most alive. Mm. And then the whole film stops to show you that uh, this is all going to be over in the blink of an eye. For yeah. them. And often, uh, Alex and I were laughing when we were watching it because... Um, unintentionally, or maybe it is intentionally, mm. it was funny in a dark way because most of their deaths are described as shot eight times in the head, yeah. shot nine times in the head or whatever. Yeah. It's crazy. And Apart from one guy who's like well-liked by all, died, yeah, died, happily. <laughs> died peacefully yeah, and happily in exactly. 2009 or whatever. Yeah, that, <laughs> I think it is that thing where it's like that darkly comedic thing and it's I see that now. And I think that's why this was a cool conversation for us to have on this podcast because it is a film that is, for us at least, so linked to the other films of that genre yeah. and so linked to Scorsese. So us putting it through our lens of... Uh, you know, the continuation of film history and text through time yep. that we do as the people that talk about reboots and remakes. I, I like seeing that as like, this is the way we introduce these characters in this movie. Whereas when we meet characters in Goodfellas, you mm. know, that one shot where we're going around that bar and, you know, Jimmy two times is going to go get the papers, get the papers, Frankie yeah. the Wop, yada, yada, all these people like that. And it's like exciting and electric and like, you know, like, oh yeah, you got Frankie Carboni. Yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, it's like, wow, what a world we're being introduced to this one. This time we're like, this is what you're being introduced to. Everyone here has been shot in the head yeah. eight times. Everyone here is brutally murdered by their own people usually. Yeah, that's their destiny. So if you didn't listen to the Irishman episode, uh, in summation, we put it up where there with one of the great uh, gangster comedies mm. of all time, along with Find Me Guilty, <laughs> Corky Romano. Um, Mickey Blue Mickey Eyes. Mickey Blue Eyes, stuff like that. All yeah. the great gangster the great. comedies. Yeah. Uh, but this week, what we're talking about, uh, we're talking about a pretty... A true classic of cinema. Mm. We're talking about the 1961 film by Robert Rosson. The film is The Hustler. Mm-hmm. So it's Paul Newman, Jackie Gleason, George C. Scott, and Piper Laurie. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're talking about this because uh, 23 years later, I believe, Martin Scorsese directed a sequel to this film starring Paul Newman as an older, fast Eddie Felsen. Yeah. And... Uh, I think this is kind of fascinating because that film would be the f- might truly be the first film that we would consider a legacy sequel. Yeah, where it's a many many years later, decades later sequel to an iconic property that follows in the continuation, but is also a commentary on like maybe where this actor is now mm. and like the cultural context and touchstone that that film was. It also feels like. The idea of a legacy sequel didn't really kick off again until the last decade. Mm. So there was a whole chunk of time in the middle there where this wasn't happening. Mm. And then you started getting it happening again. If there was a, for example, the for example, what would have happened instead? It would have been uh, something like Starsky and Hutch or the mm. um, Brady Bunch movie where you get the original actors in, yep. in a small cameo playing a different character. In a comedy version of it. In a comedy of version do. of it. But yeah. this this feels to me like a, 
Like the it was ahead of its time. In it's a, like, in like like the, thirty years ahead of its time. It's like the Creed thing. Mm. Creed, yeah. Star Wars: Force <laughs> Awakens, JJ uh, Abrams, Star Trek, where yeah. the original Excuse me, Ghostbusters, Jason Go- Reitman. Okay, Jason Reitman's Ghostbusters, which is of course one of the most exciting films that is sure to come and hit us, hit our freaking screens. Okay, <laughs> and yes, I can't really talk about it. I have been cast as Baby Slimer, so. <laughs> I can't. I'm not at liberty to discuss Ghostbusters. Can I you can't please, even say that. Please let us know. Is there any ghost blowjobs in this movie? I am not at liberty to discuss whether or not my ass gets eaten out by Paul Rudd. Okay, <laughs> I'm not at liberty to say okay, that. You know that. Okay. All right. I signed a freaking NDA. What does that stand for? No demons allowed. <laughs> 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 but you know what the what the all those films, including the aforementioned Ghostbusters Afterlife, <laughs> they're all that passing of the torch film. Yeah, and I think that you know what that film, uh, The Color of Money, directed by Martin Scorsese, the sequel to the film we're discussing today, The Hustler has. It's got Thomas Cruise Mapatha yes. the fourth as a young buck that's being mentored by Farsity Felsen. And it's funny to me because we can look back at The Color of Money from Mm. today and see it as just two classic, Mm. iconic actors working together with a brilliant, acclaimed director. Mm. But at the time, it probably would have been looked at in the way that we look at these legacy sequels, which is classic, iconic actor, great director, young hot yeah. dude from like, yeah. popcorn movies. Some John Boyega yeah, or like someone. Fucking... And Ansel Elgort. Yeah, that's what it would have been looked <laughs> It's at like as. Brad Pitt and Ansel Elgort team up <laughs> yeah. finally. For a Fight Club yeah. sequel or something. <laughs> and we all would have been like, Jesus Christ. Mm. But but now with uh, the benefit of time on our mm. sides, it's um, it, it might be looked at as a classic. I've mm. never seen it. I've seen it only once. Okay. I have much more um, much more experience with the film that we're going to discuss today, The Hustler. Yeah. Um, we were talking about, we just watched this movie together. We don't always get to watch the films together, but this time we're like, yeah, let's watch The Hustler together. Because I think that you and I, when we were putting this little mini-series together, when this one came up and you brought it up, I was like, oh man, I'm jumping at this for yeah. sure. Because uh, we were discussing how at the time of us getting into film about 10, 15 years ago, the mid-2000s, going through lists of what the great films are, IMDb Top 250 at the time for mm-hmm. me. The 1001 Films to See Before You Die, yeah. coffee table book that every nerd had at one point or another. I feel like this film was much more in the conversation back then than it is now. Yeah. I feel like it's almost not even full So is the film The Conversation. I know, no one talks about the conversation anymore. There needs to be more conversations about the conversation. I think there truly should be. There needs to be a podcast called Conversations About the Conversation (laughs) that you and I will produce. We'll do the first episode. Sure. But then we get two other pairs of people (laughs) to have conversations about the conversation. Because it is great. It is great. But we're not talking about that. I think maybe that's a way... Actually, no, we're talking about that right now. (laughs) I think that we should do that and then we go through all the Coppola movies. Yeah. Okay, we got You Don't Know Jack. Jack about Jack, and it's people talking about Jack, the Robin Williams movie that he made about Robin Williams playing uh, a six-year-old boy. Apocalypse Now, Apocalypse Then. Yes, where we talk about Apocalypse Now when it came out, and Apocalypse uh, Now when it's now in cinemas, again as it's like 40th year re-release, 40 years later. Mm. 
And the Podfather, of course. Yes, which probably has 25,000 podcasts called that <laughs> on iTunes. <laughs> we want to get lost in the Ricky mix. Ricky Gervais' podcast was called The Podfather. Was it? Yeah, there was like a little album released on oh, him. Oh, good Lord. He's and the funniest. you know, that's what I find funny. Yeah. You find, you know, talking about movies funny, I find Ricky Gervais hilarious. <laughs> He's my favourite Golden Globes host. Oh, God, yeah. Him and, you know, that's it, actually. Yeah. Him and probably Bob Hope or some shit. But we're talking about The Hustler. We're not Mm -hmm. talking about the conversation. So, you're right. The Hustler was, I think, one of those films that would have been name-checked as a classic. Mm. Um, Probably up there with Rebel Without a Cause Mm. or Giant. Like, in that kind of conversation. At least when you and I were first getting into cinema. And I think we kind of trace it back a little bit then that around the time that you and I both saw this, um, Paul Newman was kind of coming to the end of his life. Yeah. He was either still alive or he passed away in 2008. Yeah. So so it's possible that we were watching this movie when we were younger Mm. in light of looking at the classics that a cinema great had made. Mm. I remember watching it in, in run with all those films. I I watched Cool Hand Luke, Mm -hmm. Hard, this one, Butch Cassidy, all kind of in a row. And fell in love with Paul Newman as a performer. And those goddamn peepers. Old Blue Eyes himself. Yes, (laughs) indeed. That's what I call him, Mickey Blue Eyes. (laughs) (laughs) But I just don't know if people think about The Hustler at all Mm. anymore. It may have been a little bit lost to time in the last sort of decade or so. I think it's more that maybe like through this lens of him passing away, the... I think a lot of these older classic films, now that we don't have the stars of them alive, mm. they may have either lost their relevancy or their need to be discussed or why we discuss them. Because I think of the films that he's in, the ones that still get discussed more so than The Hustle now would be the ones that he collaborated with Robert Redford on, like mm. The Sting, Best mm. Picture winner, uh, but more so uh, Butch Casting of the Sundance Kid because it was one of those... Mm. 1969, a few years after this, one of those first like um, uh, revisionist westerns of the modern era. For sure. Where it's really different. It's got kind of pop music in it. It's got Burt Yeah, Bacharach. the Bacharach score. And I think, you know, at least for me, that film has retained its legacy mm. in part due to the Sundance Film Festival, yeah. which kept the name alive in a yeah. weird way. Um, the Sting, I think, a little bit less so. Mm. I still love that movie, but yeah. I don't think it's held... I think Cool Hand Luke still has a place mm. because <clears throat> the prison movie genre has never died. Yeah. So whenever a new prison movie comes out, be it an escape plan. Yeah. Escape plan <laughs> Requiem. Yeah. Or escape plan the third trimester <laughs> <laughs> where it's a young baby supposed to trying to break from the womb. Anytime a new one of those movies sort of comes out, you can draw the lineage back mm. to Cool Hand Luke or something yeah. like that. You know, which is... But I think pool hustling movies don't exist. Mm. So that may be why this movie has been lost a bit because who the fuck even plays pool anymore? No one hustles. Yeah. There's no legacy of it. I guess in Australia, it's just like a pub activity. Yeah, it's a pub activity. But uh, in America, it was a... It was a pastime. America's pastime. It was America's pastime. <laughs> Past, like in a dark room full of cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think that you and I, we both have like a real fondness for this film. Yeah. And it was, I remember watching it going like, oh my God, movies are cool. It was yeah. one of those movies where I f- first saw that going like, 
God, everyone should see how cool this movie is. Maybe you want to smoke cigarettes. Maybe you want to smoke durries. Maybe you want to get fatter. <laughs> wear a three-piece suit with a couple of carnations <laughs> on it. Um, but I think we should just dive straight into this because I think that... I think, how about Cameron? How about we sink this eight ball okay. and discuss The Hustler? Let's do it. Big John, you think this boy is a hustler? The Hustler, 1961, directed by Robert Rosson. They called him Fast Eddie. He was a winner. He was a loser. He was a hustler. Fast Eddie Felsen is a small-time pool hustler with a lot of talent, but a self-destructive attitude. His bravado causes him to challenge the legendary Minnesota Fats to a high-stakes match. Do you know what I would say mm. is that that plot is inaccurate? Yeah, it leaves out the dramatic element of the entire if film. If you were to read that plot, small-time pool hustler who gets drawn into a, um, you know, like a high-stakes mm. pool match, you would be forgiven for thinking that this is a sports movie. Yeah. And I don't think it is. Mm. I think this is a drama. This, this is, is like a kitchen sink drama. This is like, you know social realism yeah. if anything this film I think that it's got the p- sports movie elements mm-hmm. for sure there's fun montages of like pool games competitions there's betting there's cheating mm. but at its heart it's a story about uh, a man who thinks he's a winner realising mm. that he's a fucking loser and that he's scum that first half hour of the film is that. Mm. Uh, maybe we sh- we'll discuss the plot a bit more than we usually do on this podcast. Yeah. Let's kind of introduce people to what this movie is. Mm. The first 15 minutes of the movie, it really throws you into a moment. Mm. We discussed watching this together that, like, you know, it's this giant, this exterior shot just starts kind of out of nowhere. We follow Fast Eddie and his manager or his, like, you know, his partner in the hustling mm. game into this pool hall where he challenges someone. And the way that it's set up is your it's it's so low key. He's kind of just seems like a guy like they're just playing pool. It's almost real time in a way too. Yeah. And I think it has to be because you wanna see that the that what they do is like a long game. Mm. They're not just running into town and like then running away with money. Yeah. They're spending a day at a pool hall. A day at a pool hall. Chatting to the fucking locals, drinking, getting to know everyone. Playing very playing, averagely. Playing average pool, establishing Fast Eddie as a mm. hard drinker. Yeah. So that when people start betting him, on him, mm. that you we as a viewer can believe that they would believe that yep. he is just some drunk who's kind of shit at pool. Who wants to play along with them. They, yeah. he, they, when they put, and also kind of leading them to suggest putting the money down. That's the best part. Because mm. that, that way you really can't... I was thinking about that on this viewing. I love a con man story, yeah. but I think that's the key is that he's the one who, he doesn't ever say, give me all your money. They mm. are the ones chiming in going, I want to put $200 on yeah. this that he won't make the shot. Yeah. And really as a con man, that way they can't bash you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you legally you can't <laughs> bash Legally me. you guys can't bash me because you are the ones who said that <laughs> you you're going to put the money on. Like all that? right. So if you play the tape back, You'll see that you were the one who said that. Thank you. 
<laughs> you do the most fabulous Fast Eddie impression. <laughs> That's what he Incredible sounds like. Incredible impression. Excuse me. Hello. Uh, I, like, I think you remember that. Uh, you can't bash me because it was your idea to do this shit, okay? <laughs> you can't bash me. But it's like this really low-key setup of like, you know, slowly finding out like, I think you're I think you're a hustler. You don't find out till like 20 yeah. minutes into the movie. If you hadn't if looked you at the title, the title. <laughs> when you walked in <laughs> yeah. to the cinema, if you said... Give me. I don't want to know what's on. Just yeah. send me into a theater. And like, and they're like, "Hang on, hold up." Yeah, three seconds. Okay, go. Okay, go, go, you go. I don't want in. you to know what this is about. Yeah, you would think it's about a guy who's bad at pool. Mm. The reveal, of course, is that he is exceedingly good at it. <laughs> he's incredible, <laughs> and also he's the hottest person that's he's ever so, walked the fucking he's planet. He's gorgeous, Earth. man. Beautiful, big blue papers. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful actor. Wonderful looking actor as well. Mm. Now, for those of you who don't know what a pool hustler is. Um, it's like, you know, if we went to the time zone yeah, and we pretended that we'd never played Mario Kart before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what's this, some sort of fucking little Italo fellow or something? Yeah. Was he a yeah. plumber? What's some he doing sort of riding a yeah. little cart? Okay. Yeah, you guys want to play for some cash or something? <laughs> <laughs> so, so what? hang on a second, there's this... A turtle shell and you yeah, can yeah, shoot yeah. it? I don't know. I'll probably fuck it up. Anyway, a hundred bucks. <laughs> hundred bucks down. Yeah, yeah. We're two just dumbasses. We don't know Jack shit, but you know. A Jack shit. What's his name? Monkey Kangas? I don't know who this guy is. <laughs> Monkey Kangas? Don't know. Yeah, yeah. 500, <laughs> 600 bucks? Yeah, hey, by the way, in uh, in Santa Cruz when I was on my holiday, we went into like the Santa Cruz mm. Boardwalk Pier, which is yeah. all arcade games. And um, Alex and I played Mario Kart for about an hour straight yeah. against each other because... I refused to stop playing because she beat me every single time. <laughs> every time. That's so funny. She's a prodigy. I heard you were walking around the Santa Monica pier with your pockets hanging out. Yeah, little moths <laughs> buzzing around and shit. I had to keep going to the ATM and topping up my oh, God. games card because she kept beating me and I was getting so angry. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen you play a video game. Yeah, well. I've never seen you touch a controller. you got to see me play Mario Kart. I'm, oh, okay. uh, I'm very yeah. extreme about uh, it. Oh, yeah. I got my Nintendo Switch. I put 700, 800 bucks down <laughs> and we'll give, it, we'll give it a shot. <laughs> so, Fast Eddie Felsen is mm. a pool hustler and that's established in the first 20 minutes that this mm. is a guy who <clears throat> he's traveling from California. He's clearly making a living with his mm. partner doing this from town to town along yep. the way. But they are heading to... Where do they go? Is it Chicago? I think they go... Or New York? I think they end up in New York. Um, but, you know, it's like, you know, Chicago, Philadelphia, New York. They're like traveling across city. country yeah. on with the explicit purpose of playing this guy who's allegedly the greatest pool shark yep. in the country. Minnesota Fats. One of the greatest characters. This movie has... Fast Eddie Felsen and Minnesota Fats. Yeah. Two of the best named characters ever. Yeah. yeah. I wish people called me, you know, Inner West Fatso or something <laughs> like that. It's just cool because they also call each other by that name. Mm. Some people call him Eddie and stuff, yeah. but like whenever they talk to each other, they call each other Minnesota and Fast Eddie. Yeah. It's, like, it's awesome. It's like they nickname. invite you into this world, which makes me realize like, oh, of course is a property that Scorsese would want to, mm. you know, put his little hands all over because <laughs> it is like you're being brought into this very secret underground world mm. that people have these nicknames. They have this coded language for each other. And, um, you know, there's this moment of like pure glee where they move to a new city and they st- and then someone else brings up the name Minnesota Fats, like, oh, he's one of the best. And he feels that, ch- you see that challenge yeah. expression just go across Paul Newman's face yeah. and they're like, oh, yes, mama. 
it's like that scene in The Departed where yeah. Jack Nichols is like, oh, <laughs> oh, head bobbing up and down. Yeah, he's a, a man having his masculinity tested. Mm. He wants to be the best. He challenges fast. Uh, sorry, he challenges Minnesota Fats to a game mm. very early on. Yep. They play for hours. Um, and the way that this this scene is filmed, and the way this whole film is filmed, is very much in this social realism style of filmmaking where it's kind of like you know the progeny of like your italian neorealism your indian parallel <laughs> cinema where those films are all about creating this sense of reality uh not cinema verite like not documentary mm. style but like having very uh realistic performances yeah also coming out of like the actor studio in new york city at mm. this time I believe Paul Newman studied under the same people that Marlon Brando, James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, where they yeah. were all that new wave of actors coming through in the mid-1950s. So it's all of this kind of stuff, kind of co- this confluence of influences coming together at once. Yeah. So the way they would describe socialism is more a term using like uh, describing British cinema, that kitchen sink yeah. kind of stuff that you were talking about, like yeah. English TV drama a lot of the time. I was going to compare this to like a TV playhouse mm. some sort of vibe. Which is also what this is coming out of. Like mm. the TV playhouse, those live to direct to TV uh, plays written by great writers like Rod mm. Serling, yeah. your Paddy Chayefsky yeah. and stuff like that who uh, were writing for TV mainly. Writing like, you know, a one hour play. Mm. Marty, Paddy Chayefsky's Marty comes out yeah. of this. Yeah. And this is all that same kind of stuff coming together where these are uh, movies about uh, people in the lower class and working class America. This kind of like, uh, the social realism deals with the lower class and the real realities of life in that way, the challenges of life in that way. And I think this film really captures that same, you know, that same spirit of social mm. realism. And in my memory, I always remember this movie being kind of like this noir film. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it is at all because Piper Laurie doesn't fit that mold of the femme fatale or anything. No. And then watching it as well, aesthetically, it's different while it is like this gorgeous black and white filmmaking, and yes, it does have lots of overhead lighting, mm-hmm. casting shadow, but I think you brought it up that you said that lighting is because it's all pool halls. Yeah, it's and naturalistic, yeah. That's n- it's not um, expressionistic at mm. all. Um, yeah, it doesn't feel like a noir. It is, it is a realistic drama, and as a result, these games, these pool games that we see, even though they're montage because they take hours... They're still largely played out in wides. Mm. There's very little trick photography used. I think there was a couple of stunt performers doing some of Paul Newman's trick shots. Yep. But, but <laughs> not Jackie. Jackie Gleason did his own. Mm. So you see a lot of it play out in wide shots. Mm. A lot of this dialogue between Minnesota Fats and Fast Eddie takes place just in wide shots around a pool table. Very little cross-cutting. Um, and also, I would say the a majority of this film... There, it's all wides. Yeah, these really big, expressive, and uh, beautifully staged wide shots. Yeah, like there's a conversation between George C. Scott and Paul Newman later on in the film where Eddie's down on his luck big time, and uh, the camera is facing Paul Newman, and then it's also facing uh, it is also facing George C. Scott, who's further in the background of the shot. Yeah. Paul Newman's sitting at a bar. The camera's right in front of him, mm. and then like you know, two, a meter or two behind him, 
Josie Scott sitting at a table and the focus is just kind of finding a marriage between them. The way that that kind of tableau is spaced out, you know, he's basically Josie Scott sitting on uh, Paul Newman's shoulder. It kind of, yeah, in that tableau setting there. And it's like, you know, it's not like a split dioptic that kind of technology wasn't really in play at that moment in time. So it's just kind of finding that marriage of focus between the two. And it's like these scenes are long, but it never feels like boring or slow. No, no way. And I think, again, it's like what I was saying about the opening sequences. Mm. You need to see the real-time effects of like a guy who's committing to essentially being mm. a con man over hours and hours mm. of time. And and Fast Eddie believes that he can out outplay Minnesota mm. Fats. He believes that he can con him over this hour, over this long, long game. He can't. He loses. He gets too drunk. And we I, I think we believe it because mm. we, we see the strain that it takes over yeah. the hours of him drinking whiskey and mm. like his cockiness falling. In fact, as I was watching that sequence, the first time they play when he finally loses and Minnesota Fats' manager, the George mm. C. Scott character, says, look at him, he's a loser. And mm. you see on Paul Newman's face that he he realises everyone around believes mm. him to be a loser now. That's the first time I realised Tom Cruise was cast in The Colour of Money because that's the persona that he played all through the 80s. Mm. That's fucking Maverick. Yeah. That's a, a cocky, like, alpha, macho mm. dude who then gets his masculinity tested and mm. shook in the fir- at the end of the first act. And then has to spend act two and three working himself back up to mm. be the like hero. Yeah. And it's like this moment where we see him like collapse and pass out in his manager's arms where he is this loser. And we've just seen him be so cool for so long in this film. Yeah. In this introduction to him. And then you can then truly believe that Paul Newman is a loser. Maybe we can use this point to talk about Paul Newman now because. He is one of the all-time great movie stars. And let's not forget, he makes a hell of a vinaigrette. He makes some of the best salad dressings ever. I mean, he's a philanthropist as well. That's part of his, yeah. like, his legend is that, like, he, yeah, Paul Newman's own, yeah. the brand of dressing and, you know, m- mixing for your ice creams and stuff, <laughs> uh, is he, 100% of the profits go to charity. Yeah. So he's like this philanthropist, he's a race car driver, he's Mm. like a serious actor. And at this point in time, Paul Newman's contemporaries, or Paul Newman's contemporaries when he was starting out, he was known as the poor man's Marlon Brando. Crazy. And it's crazy to think about that now because he's done as many iconic films as Marlon Brando has Mm. now. And never tarnish his legacy <laughs> yeah. as intentionally as Marlon Brando did. That's true. But the other actor he was compared to a lot, James Dean mm-hmm. as well, the mm-hmm. other great method actor of that time who was taken away very, you know, far too soon. Mm-hmm. And then Paul Newman picked up the couple of jobs that uh, James, James Dean, Dean had loaded to up do. to. I believe one of them would have been was um, someone up there likes me, right. which is the Rocky Graciano true story boxing film inspiration. One of the inspirations that would lead to Rocky Balboa in a franchise we've covered extensively <laughs> together. But um, I think that would have been the movie that kind of broke him and kind of established what Paul Newman is, who is like this sensitive, handsome guy that 
I think he can do anything. Let me ask you, like, because, you know, when we think of these these classic um, New York actors, mm. the studio, actors, yeah. studio actors, you know, Brando, James Dean, mm. all these guys, what they all have something about them that is their thing. Mm. Like, Brando's thing early on was the kind of... Um, Raw masculinity, Mm. mumbling, like a sensitivity that was offset by his insane body and Mm. looks. James Dean was like the raw emotion. The passion, You're tearing me apart, that kind of shit. What is Paul Newman's? Because I've loved him for so long and Mm. I just don't know if I can put my finger on what it is about him that makes him so... Mm. Memorable or so charismatic beyond what he's beyond what he looks like physical, you know, the physical classical attractiveness, and like he, handsomeness. He fucking hated being known as mm. a good looking guy, yeah, much in the same way that <laughs> you or I, uh, you or I yeah. would. <laughs> we detest it. Yes. We're podcasters and comedians, yes, call us that. Don't say hunks and spunks bodies and with chunks. bodies, yes. Um, Sexy pants, all that kind of yeah. shit. Yeah, a lot know. of people go around. Oh, who's that sexy pants? Yeah, sexy pants, <laughs> thick dicked legends, <laughs> stuff like that. We hate sexy that. pants, thick dicked legends. We hate that. We don't like it. We find it not funny. We consider ourselves to be funny first. Yes, podcasters second, uh-huh. and then third. You know, thick dick legends. Thick dick legends. <laughs> yes. So. So have a little respect. Have a little respect for us, please. But he really, he really hated the the fact that mm. people largely saw him as a matinee yeah. star. When I think he, you know, he came from theater, from actor studio. He just wanted to be an actor, mm. and he's a fucking great actor. Yeah. But what do you think it is about him? I don't really know. I think it is that charm, and I think there's a softness about him that is not the same as the vulnerability that James Dean and Marlon Brando had. Yeah. I think there's a softness about him and a tenderness about him that's not vulnerable mm. in that way. I find that, um, like in this movie, he shows a lot of vulnerability, but that's because he goes to the depths and becomes a loser and he's yeah. truly revealed to be a loser. But I think <clears throat> that the whole time, it's not like, oh, Fast Eddie, he's so tough. He's like this yeah. idea of masculinity. I think that, Paul Newman almost, he's like the other side of masculinity where it's confidence and charm, but without that machismo behind it. Yeah, I see him as, uh, yeah, you're right. The kind of softness is is there. For me also, it's a sense of calm. Mm, There's like a zen, absolutely. calm, laid back-ness mm. about him. That's why they're calling the blue-eyed Buddha. That's right. That's why he's got Paul Newman's own, you know, joie de vivre. <laughs> he's got something about him that is just so relaxed mm. on screen. He's very easy to watch, mm. and it's cool, but not in a trying to be cool way. Yeah. Like if you look at him, he looks cool because he's handsome. Yeah, and we think handsome people are cool. Yeah, but he's not. And we know you guys think we're cool for that. Like reason. us, for example. Yeah. But he doesn't have. Like the greaser hair mm. look, he's he does not dressed in a cool way. He just like is is cool. Yeah, and like you know, my first instinct to say was like oh, I beg to differ because I love his outfits in this movie. Me too. But they're not overtly it's not, cool. It's sixty one, but he's not like people in sixty one. Mm. 
like we're still dressing like the fifties. Yeah, he is not dressing like a rebel without a cause style. Yeah, or the wild bunch. He doesn't have style. a little cap on like the wild bunch. <laughs> yeah, Brando. yeah, yeah. He's wearing a polo shirt tucked into pants, yeah. trousers, yeah. with a blazer on, or he's wearing like a button-up shirt buttoned all the way up, no tie, mm. which is very cool nowadays. But you yeah. know, back then, not exactly like the air of cool that even the costuming behind Jackie Gleason's yeah. uh, fat, uh, Minnesota Fats, yeah. where he's wearing a three-piece suit and he's wearing an overcoat over it. The overcoat has a carnation on its lapel. Yeah. Beautiful detail. He takes the overcoat off on his jacket, as the exact same carnation underneath <laughs> as well. And like that is such a fun touch Did that inspire to that character. You? Yeah, I'm going to become a carnation guy I now. I can see you being a carnation But it's guy. also me wearing a tracksuit with a carnation <laughs> on it. Uh, so from there, we see Eddie hit the depths and kind of like, you know, push his manager away. He's drunk. He's got nowhere to go. He's kind of living around bars and like bus terminals. And here he meets uh, Piper Laurie's character, uh, Sarah Packard and what we would describe her as she is um, her character in this film is also someone who hangs around bars a lush we would call her that's what we were calling her watching the movie I enjoyed saying lush yeah me too we don't say it that often no you'd say more drunk or alcoholic yeah. days, but lush is a fun word to say it's and it means the words. same thing and it means the same thing and also we were day drinking watching this movie we were so we had a we couple were, of tequilas we were having a great time on the rocks on the rocks dude and we got our rocks off <laughs> watching this movie so Piper Laurie is playing Sarah she's a lush she's hanging out at these bars all day she's uh, she's a student whose father's kind of paying for her lifestyle in the ci- in the big city, and she also has like this limp in her foot or in her leg rather. Mm-hmm. She also has a limp in her leg. Limp in her leg. Yeah, she got a limp in her leg. She got a limp in. Her she leg. got a limp in a biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they meet and they form this like really strange bond because I think Piper Laurie is one of the most fascinating character actors. Because she was in a few movies leading up to this, you know, an ingenue starlet kind mm. of thing um, in the late 50s, early 60s. She's that ingenue. She gets this film and this is such a... This performance is so... It's very interesting. She gets an Academy Award for Academy Award nomination for this performance, Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Then she just moves to New York City, does a few TV shows, does some plays, is married. Doesn't work until 1976 she makes Carrie returns to the big screen as Carrie's mother yeah. gets an Academy Award nomination again as Best <laughs> Supporting Actress and then you know does a few things here or there then the other iconic movie she's in is um, a movie that is called Children of a Lesser God once again Best Supporting Actress oh really yeah well, I didn't know that. Um, I knew it from this, obviously. But if you're uh, if you're like me, mm-hmm. if you're Cameron James, you will largely know her from Twin Peaks. Yeah, um, she's in Twin Peaks or The Faculty. The Faculty, which she's you and also, I just watched together, also in The Faculty. Yeah, but I love her in Twin Peaks. She's fantastic in Twin Peaks. I've been rewatching it or kind of going through it. You know, yep. for the first time, trying to get through the entire series. I don't want to spoil anything for season mm. two for you, but she plays. An uh, interesting role in season two. Yeah. But this performance, seeing her as this younger star, she is incredible in this role. Yeah. The way that she... Like, I don't describe performances this way 
because I feel like it's almost cheating, but she's a haunted character in a very real sense. Like she's got this kind of tragic backstory that we slowly see coming out yeah. and why she's been this kind of like sad, tortured person. But also there's like this vacantness about her and the way that she kind of stares, the way how little emotion bubbles up from her and how her face is so kind of blank faced in this movie. It is that haunting thing. Like, it yeah. feels sad. It's a scary performance. It's quite scary. I was saying to you, it kind of reminded me of uh, uh, Kim Novak in Vertigo. Mm, it's a, great call. It's a blankness that... Blank's not even the right word. It's blank that suggests. Yeah, a suggestive blankness that just has, like, darkness underneath it. You know, mm. the way she stares at him... It's scary. Mm. This is a sad woman, a haunted woman, as you've said, a woman with trauma in her life. She drinks constantly. And there are so many long takes and moments in this movie of her walking Mm. when she's drunk. And I honestly felt scared that she was going to do something Mm. damaging to herself or other people at any given moment Mm. in this movie. There's fear there because Mm. she seems unpredictable and wild. Yeah. Um, for such a restrained performance, if you watch this after listening to the podcast, mm. you might not even know what I'm trying to say by yeah. that. And I think, I think it's just it's a look we've all seen in certain people mm. that have had too much to drink and that drink regularly. Yeah, it's quite frightening when you see the darkness in someone. Yeah, and she captures it so yeah. well. And interesting, I watched a documentary that featured interviews with her. Um, uh, just before we watch the movie, because I want to revisit it, get a better idea of everything. And it brought up ideas that I don't really ever consider part of acting or performance. You know, one of the things that she talked about how her character has a limp, so she tried to do the method thing that mm. was all the rage and put like a stone in her shoe or a pebble, and then she hated it and then just decided one day to pretend. She's like, oh, that's way better. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's, you know, that's acting. But then another thing that was interesting was because this movie... It has that social realistic aspect where, you know, studio films of this era were filmed on sets almost 100% apart from exteriors where we'd establish a shot outside, Mm. then we go inside. This movie is filmed on real locations for a lot of it. Mainly the pool halls are very obviously real Mm -hmm. gritty, grimy. You can see like dirty dust everywhere. Like it captures that real vibe to bring that authenticity. But because they're filming on locations a lot, back in this day, the sound capabilities were not as good as they are now. So there was a lot of looping involved um, Mm -hmm. on this film in particular. So looping is like ADR where you record your dialogue after the fact in a studio. And she decided that when she was doing it, she changed the voice of the character and brought the register down more. And it's interesting because I—that's to—I've never ever once, out of the millions of movies I've ever seen and made, mm. I've not made a million movies. I made a couple, <laughs> but um, I've never once thought about ADR and looping as performance. Mm. And to kind of bring that up and going like, oh no, that is performance as well. And yeah. she's still continuing to create that character and making that character bring that dourness even more to it, that sadness yeah. to it by bringing the register of the voice down. And almost in a way, like, you know, making her less feminine by making the voice a lower register. It reminded me of, uh, remember when we were talking about Suspiria, Mm. the original Suspiria? 
how I believe it was Suspiria. Yes. All the actors were speaking their own native mm. tongue on set and yeah. then it was uh, looped into English or Italian or, or whatever something. language dubbed into. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you can sort of, as a result, that adds a sort of remoteness or mm. disconnect between the performers. Mm. Something about knowing that fact about Piper Laurie now mm. explains some of the distance. Yeah. That I feel when I'm watching her. Yeah. If, if she literally is in a booth speaking differently to how she spoke on set, some of that comes across. Mm. You a know, little and, bit of that. And as a result, when you're watching her, you kind of feel like there's mm. this element of uncertainty with her. And that's why we call this podcast a mission through magic. Because yeah. we understand the magic of film. I love, I love cinema and I love how, honestly, mm. magic it is. Mm. And then... We'll keep kind of walking through the plot before we pick up a few other things before we close up. But, um, you know, Eddie moves in with her. She slowly... They, she falls in love with him. She He refuses to say the words. Yeah. That classic kind of trope. And then uh, Eddie comes across George C. Scott's character again, who is Fast Eddie Felson's manager. And, Minnesota Fats's manager. Sorry, yeah. He's Minnesota Fats's manager. And, you know, Josie Scott's like, you're actually the best pool player I've ever did see. You're better than than Minnesota Fats. Yeah. And so he's like, I'm going to back you. They go to Kentucky, to Kentucky Derby kind of shit, start gambling, doing all this stuff. And um, it, it she comes along for the ride. Uh, Piper Laurie's character comes from, uh, come Piper Laurie's character joins him and she kind of gets a greater understanding of like what this sick world is that he's a part of this mm. underground world. Yeah. She um you know she says that uh it's a world that's perverted, twisted and crippled. Yeah. And uh it's this big emotional beat while he's like having this long pool game with someone that's kind of hustling them. And she leaves and Eddie uh, uses that kind of anger and actually wins the game and beats the hustler. And uh, later that night when he's going out drinking, Jorsky Scott returns to the hotel room and it's implied that he has sex with Piper Laurie's character. It's also, that's an interesting moment because it's a moment that could have been and probably would be in more recent Mm. films portrayed as rape Mm. and it's not necessarily shown as rape in this Mm. but it is shown as like a manipulation manipulation it's non-consensual in its tone as well yeah um but it's not shown as a forceful moment on screen it's yeah. just manipulation, manipulative or sinister. Yeah. yeah, it's very sinister and very, it's awful. Like it's no, it's using. And this is a character who literally is a user. George yeah. Scott's character. He uses uh, Fast Eddie. He uses Minnesota Fats to kind of make his fortune and kind of live through this kind of world, this disgusting world. Mm. And she, Fast Eddie returns home and he finds that on the mirror it's written... Uh, perverted, perverted, twisted, twisted crippled. crippled. And she has killed herself. Yeah. And she finds her body with police around it and he attacks George C. Scott's character. This is a movie that half an hour earlier we thought was just going to be about pool. Mm, and it's fun <laughs> and it's exciting yeah, to see this and underground Yeah, it turns world. into such a dark drama, mm. like almost melodrama in a way. And it really is after that first, like, you know, 40 minutes of, like, exciting pool where he becomes a loser and then, you know, he finds his 
life in this sad world yeah. and this twisted part of humanity. It's To be honest, it's a part of the film I'd forgotten about. Mm. And I remember the poster for the film is like, there's not even pool really mm. on the poster. It's that shot of, it's a drawing of yeah. Paul Newman and Piper Laurie kissing in like a passionate... Him holding her... Going with the wind sort of way. But it's like, I, the poster as well, <laughs> I've got it here, it's both of their faces aren't really exposed. And yeah. then there's just a little Jackie Gleason's head. There's a little out Jackie the Gleason, and there's a pool cue or something. But it's them. Of it. It's them in this like weird embrace where it looks like he's crying into her chest. Yeah. And then there's this giant purple shadow with like the tagline of the film uh, written up, written up on it. And it's, um, it's. I think it is evocative of what the mood of this film is. Where but it's it, like you'd think it would be pool themed. Yeah, it's you, not. The movie's it, called The Hustler, and you don't really see any pool stuff on the artwork mm. for it. It's just. It highlights the mm. like kind of Marlon Brando-y. He's in a singlet, yeah, holding a woman, and it looks kind of like Brando-y. Yeah, streetcar, streetcar, ro- like romantic film. Yeah, and also you know the movies that he'd done previous to this as well. Cat in a Hot Tin Roof was another mm. big one, also mm. based on Tennessee Williams. Yeah, but anyway, I'd forgotten about this whole element of mm. the film. I'd say you know, if anything, I remembered it as a subplot. It's mm. not. It's the plot of the movie yeah. and then the pool is B story and then at the end of the film the the climax of the film is that Eddie goes back to the pool hall he challenges Minnesota Fats uh, George C. Scott is there and he destroys Minnesota Fats absolutely destroys him to the point where Minnesota Fats quits he can't like he quits he's yeah. not in the business anymore <clears throat> yeah. and then because Eddie wins all the money Joyce Scott wants a cut. He's like, I can't give you my cut. You're a fucking awful. Mm. You're awful. I'm not going to give you my cut. And he's like, well, if you... I'm not going to give you a cut. I'm going to bash you. He's like, well, actually, you can't bash me. You can't bash me technically. Mm, technically, you can't bash me. But he's like, if you bash me, you better hope you kill me because otherwise I'm going to come and kill you. Yeah. And so he leaves with the money, the glory, but none of them can ever step in a pool hall ever again. And I read Roger Ebert's review before this rewatch and he said how this movie was... The first American movie where the character, or not, this is not a direct quote, but the this is the first American movie where the character, you know, finds completes their arc, finds their um, fi- by finding their place in reality rather than achieving their dreams. Sure, sure, by sure, accepting sure, sure. the reality around them. Yeah, and it's a very un-American ending for this film to be also. Oh my god, very un-American ending for this film because also it is about someone that uh, to find their success sells out the one person that ever cared Mm, for mm. them and, you know, destroys their life. They kill themselves and then find their success after that in a very regretful, regrettable way. Yeah, it's a win and a loss at the same time, Mm. which often they're the films that live on in Mm. history. Or they're the stories that live on. Think like Rocky is the exact same thing. He loses the fight, spoilers, but he wins the heart of Adrian. A lot of these, a lot of these great films mm. end on a melancholy note of mm. one victory coming at the cost of something else, um, and that's it's what makes you keep thinking about mm. it. And this movie in particular, that I think that's a very interesting ending because Robert Rosson uh, was the director of this film. He was a screenwriter and a producer who had a big film career, 
Um, he died a few years after making this film. He died in 1966 at the age of like in his mid 50s. Uh, before that, he also his most notable movie was a movie called All the King's Men, which won Oscars for Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Supporting Actress. And you know, later we can cover that too. It was remade by as a movie with Sean Penn in it in like the <laughs> early 2000s. Um, but he was you know a working director and and writer. Uh, he was in the 1930s and 40s part of the Communist Party of America. Mm. And the way that he talked about it, uh, there was a quote that I found of him where he said, yeah, of course I'm part of this. This is a party that cares about um, the rights for poor Jews like myself. Mm. And so he was a an active member of the American Communist Party, which of course in the 1950s, uh, the House of American Activities, the House of uh, the House of Un-American Activities, HUAC, uh, head by Joseph McCarthy, head by McCarthy, uh, was you know bringing people in for questioning where they had to you know sit in front of a te- testify mm. and like name names, mm. be stool pigeons, and Robert Rosson went in the first time he played the fifth and refused to name names, and then he came. In after, he was kind of accused by Jack Warner, who Uh was, you know, Warner Brothers, uh, because he made an enemy of Jack Warner because he, like, was part of a picket line against Warner Brothers. Mm. So Jack Warner was one of the people who accused him of being like, this is one of the leftist writers, so he should be brought in for questioning. Mm. He was brought in another time years later to testify, and he named 57 names. Oh, man. So he was, and that was because he had been blacklisted from Hollywood. wasn't yeah. working for for years because yeah. of it. Came in, name names, was able to get his career back a bit, but not enough. He made this one classic <clears throat> movie, a couple, one or two after this, and then died. Uh, he yeah. never really found that success again early on. But that's what this movie is also about. It's about someone to find the success, sold out someone, sold yeah. out the person that cared about them. And then for at what cost? Yeah, that's interesting. That's a good read on this. And I think, you know, you look at the films of this era that deal with the same stuff. You've got On the Waterfront starring Marlon Brando, which is Elia Kazan's mm-hmm. uh, version of this as well, who very famously he named names after being a member of the Communist Party as well. And, you know, these people like Robert Ross and Eli Kazan, they named people... Like, Arthur Miller was one of the people that was blacklisted Mm. who would do The Crucible. That's his side of that story as well. So there's a lot of these movies and, like, great pieces of art that emerge from this dark time in Hollywood history, you know? If anyone... Dalton uh, Trumbo as well, another one of the great blacklisted writers. Yeah. Played by Bryan Cranston in the movie (laughs) Trumbo. If anyone here wants to... Read a, mm. a, a different story about the blacklist. There's mm. a great series at the moment on. You must remember this mm. about Song of the South, which oh, was wow. famously a, a Disney film that has been mm. um, considered to be a, a, like a retrograde racist yeah. film in hindsight and, and at the time as well. But it was written by a former blacklisted screenwriter. Mm. Um, Walt Disney hired this um, mm. openly communist Jewish yeah. writer who'd been blacklisted to write the film almost to show the world that he wasn't anti-Semitic. Mm. To go, look, all these rumors of me being anti-Semitic are crazy. Wow. I've hired a Jewish writer. Yeah. Um, but 
he hired a Jewish writer to write the most racist film ever made. Yeah. So, like, it's uh, it's very interesting. So, if you want to listen to that, mm. it's the current season of You Must Remember This on the Song of the South. It's it's got a lot of good takes on the yeah. blacklist in it. It's one of this, like, the Hollywood blacklist, the the Hollywood 10, I think that's always been one of the things that's fascinated me most yeah. about filmmaking because, you know, it's like this convergence of things that have mattered to me a lot as far as social mm. justice goes and, uh, you know, communism goes. And I, it, I mean, I've like did assignments on it in high school and stuff, like a little freak. And it's yeah, it's a really dark time, I'd say. Uh, you know, and it's one of the things I think we should look at more to understand the times that we're in today, and to kind of under to make sure things like this don't continue to happen. It's kind of also this film uh, comes out of that era. It also comes out of this really interesting era to you and I, mm. which is the birth of comedy as mm. a form of entertainment, as America's yes. pastime. You know, comedy for a large part, I think, uh, grew out of like, a, obviously there's a tradition mm. of vaudeville and slapstick and everything, but stand-up comedy and review style mm. cabaret comedy grew out of the same era during Prohibition mm as a way, as a cheap form of entertainment to have mm. on in bars that were licensed to serve alcohol. And we talked about this a little bit, like, you know, The Irishman, where yep. Don Rickles appears. Jackie Gleason yeah. is one of the great classic comedy entertainers. He's one of those guys. It's mm. that era. It's Rickles, Jack Gleason, um, uh, Lucille Ball. Lucille Ball. A little bit later on, you've got like Red Fox and yep. people like that. Uh, Martin and Lewis. Yeah, Red it's, Buttons. Yeah, it's that era of kind of song and dance style mm. comedy. Before stand-up comedy was a thing, mm-hmm. they were these entertainers who did it all. They did jokes. Yep. They did classic songs. They did parody songs, mm. dance routines. They had a band. Yeah. Rodney Dangerfield started in that yeah. uh, in that era too and then kind of disappeared for 20 years and yeah. then came back in the like as a character at late 60s as yeah. a character Rodney Dangerfield you know it's like um and Jackie Gleason is one of those guys who if you don't know who he is he's the model visually and personality wise for every sitcom dad yeah. that has ever existed since the 60s including Fred Flintstone. Fred it's, Flintstone is stolen from him. He's the carbon copy <laughs> of Yeah. He was in a TV show called The Honeymooners which was one of the first classic TV sitcoms. Yeah. And he was brought on after he had a show called The Jackie Gleason show. Yeah, which was like a variety show. There's many mm. of them at that time, Sid Caesar. And yeah, all Cavalcade of, of Stars, the Jack show Benny of show, shows, all that, all that crap. shit. Shit that, like, who cares, but it's exciting to know about. We Dean Martin. It. Like, the Dean oh, Martin the show. the Dean Martin show. But Jackie Gleason had one of those mm. after years of being a performer mm. in, in clubs like the Copa. And there was a sketch that he did on that called The Honeymooners, which was about a bickering mm. husband and wife. That went on to become one of the most iconic sitcoms of all yeah. time. Which you and I just looked up only ran for one season. For thirty something episodes. Thirty nine episodes. Yeah. And it's one of those sitcoms that is talked about like I Love Lucy, which mm. ran for like thirty years. Yeah. <laughs> I think I Love Lucy's still airing yeah. the new episodes. Yeah. They still they filmed so many, they're still trying to get them out. <laughs> but it was only thirty nine episodes and it left such a huge cultural footprint. Mm. It became the it became the blueprint for every family sitcom that came yeah. afterwards. The Grumpy Dad, yeah, 
Um, who's quite dumb. Who's like dumb and like Probably blue fat. collar. Blue collar, fat, <laughs> yeah. Hot wife who mm. is smarter than him but yeah. annoys him. And their neighbours. And the nosy neighbours yeah. who stick their fucking faces yeah. in every like... 20 minutes. You just described The Simpsons, Married with Children, yeah. uh, Peter Griffin, The Family Master. Raymond. Everybody Loves Raymaster. Yes. Uh, all of this. Will everything. and Grace, sort of. And all, <laughs> Will and Grace, kind of. Uh, but also, you know, this is, you know this from Powell Bang's Straight to the Moon, which is like, you yeah. know, Futurama. That's the cultural touchstone of this. And Jackie Gleason, like, it's fascinating to look back at, like, how does a career like that exist? Because mm. when you think of comedy or stand-up now, you go, oh, I know what stand-up comedy is. It's yeah. a person telling jokes or their stories in front of an audience. Yeah, and then maybe if they're lucky, mm. someone develops their persona into a mm-hmm. sitcom like Ray or Jerry yeah. or, you know, Louis C.K. or any of these guys yeah. who have the big iconic ones. Um, their persona and their stand-up gets mm. turned into script. Yeah. But how did it happen before that? And kind of didn't, man. It didn't happen. It's like, what even was stand-up? It was people doing the same jokes. Doing was like, each other's gear. There was a hundred right? jokes and a hundred yeah. performers doing each other's it's jokes. Fucking Henny Youngman should have had a sick. <laughs> yeah. Take my wife. Take I my beg of wife, you. Please. <laughs> but, you know, we read that Jackie Gleason, he got the acting bug in high school, yeah. left... And then started emceeing a theatre for four bucks a night. It's like Dolomite, man. It yeah. kind of reminds me of that. Like, Absolutely. There was a time in history where if you wanted to be in showbiz, you just could. Mm. You could just be in it. You had like, to have a could, dream and a, quit and a buck in your pocket. Yeah. And move to fucking New York and yeah. get a job emceeing a strip club or yeah. a um, theatre and then within two years, be on mm. television. <laughs> and this is one of those cases where it's something that you and I in particular are fascinated by. Yeah. Where there is this incredible and very thoughtfully or interestingly cast person who's known as a comedic performer, yeah. comedian, a comedic actor in a exclusively dramatic role. Yeah, someone being cast against time. Mm. You and I both love it. I've, I've gone on record as saying that it's... Often the only time I can cry is when mm. I watch a comedian turn in a great dramatic yeah. performance. Oh, my wife used to fart. <laughs> That's the one my exactly. dead wife used to fart. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Mrs. Happy <laughs> passed away. Oh. <laughs> Don't be afraid. <laughs> yeah, Sandman, yeah. Robin, Will Ferrell. But it's one of those things that it's it's not common now but it happens now yeah you see adam sandler doing uncut gems yeah, yeah you yeah. see you know the great comedy actors being placed in dramas yeah you see dice clay pop mm. up in fucking movies and Direct somebody yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. or uh, like was it Chappelle in mm. uh, star is born yes Chappelle Cedric, star is the born. entertainers always in dramatic roles you know it's... Eddie Murphy in something like um uh dream girls yeah even though it's kind of like a funny big performance but you know then there's weird ones like there's a movie directed by Dito Montiel do you remember him who did like a guide to recognizing your saints mm-hmm. fighting and mm-hmm. stuff like that mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of the movie. Maybe it's called like No Fear, Son of No One, something like that. And it's like a cop drama. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tracy Morgan is just in it. Right. As like a non-comedic role. Yeah. And so it's one of those things that exists now that you and I find fascinating. But then 
it also existed back then. This yeah. is a really notable version of it. But then you've got like red buttons playing like, um, you know, a World War, Korean War veteran or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, and like all these, like it happened more commonly because people were known as entertainers. Yeah. And like someone like Dean Martin's in Western's dramas, mm-hmm. he's one of the biggest singers in the world. He also does fucking legit stand-up comedy. <laughs> yeah. And like clowning yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Like true character piece comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like, it's the the term entertainer was like the loosest thing in the world. Yeah. And Jackie Gleason in this movie is incredible. Yeah, it's a it's not a sketch character in any not way. Not at all. It's dramatic. And it's not like he does, it's not like he has to do any of the hard mm. work of the movie, but it's just a solid, dramatic performance. It's just one of those great supporting roles where it's like the definition of a supporting role where yeah. they're in there, they're colouring the film and to have like a big star like Jackie Gleason who's a big TV star yeah. and kind of like truly uh, the household name of this movie is Jackie Gleason. Yeah. In this supporting role where it's this like dramatic turn but like you're saying, not having to do like the deep emotions. Yeah. He just has to play someone that is... A challenge is this is, is someone that has this high status in the room mm. and someone that has like this edge and it's like there's no lightness to this performance. No, no. There's only there's a little moment of levity towards mm. the end. Actually, at the very end, when yeah. when Fast Eddie has won, they're uh, both kicked out of the game. They're both kicked out of the pool, like sort of game, the hustling game, and uh, they turn to each other and both compliment each other in a good game mm. i think fast eddie says you you shoot a good game of pool fats yeah. and he goes you too fast eddie yeah and they're like kind of happy yeah they're just kind of two dudes who played the greatest game played a great game with each mm. other and they're kind of happy about it and that that's a nice moment in the yeah. movie i think and it, it comes at the very end after some heavy shit mm. so it's a nice little moment to just see at the end mm. of the day it was just a game yeah I really think that if you've not caught up with The Hustler, it's definitely one to seek out. It's a classic. It's really a classic. And, you know, it reminds me of movies like that we used to talk about on Blank Slate when we kind of uncovered Marty mm. uh, as like this uh, film that's hard to believe existed in the time that it exists. Yeah. Because it is dark. It has these social realist realities to it. There's almost zero score throughout the whole movie. There's some that kind of highlights some of the gambling, some of the pool sharking, the introduction to the film, but it's sparse. It's a mm. quiet movie. There's The only real sound effects are pool balls hitting each other. Yeah. Billiard balls smashing against each other. It made me want to hang out in a bar again. Mm. And you've been banned from that game. I can't do it. I can't do it. Uh, got bashed too many times. <laughs> yeah. Even these I'm trying to hustle. Technicality. I gave it away too early. I'd come in and go, hey, can I hustle anyone for some pool? <laughs> I oh, mean, no, no, shit. no, please don't bash me. Yeah, don't bash me. I got bashed every single every time. Every single time. 100 out of 100. You're one of the most bashed fellas I've ever met. Yeah, yeah. You've always got a little <laughs> handkerchief tied around your chin mm-hmm. with a little with a little top end tied up on your top yeah. of your head. I'm in a makeshift sling made out of my jacket. And you've got a nice little... Uh, I'm, always shiny a, eye. I'm always holding a piece of meat to my eye. <laughs> so you got a shiner with a meat on it. I got a shiner. <laughs> shiner. <laughs> um, this was such a great movie to talk about. Yeah, as well. it was. I'm glad we did it. I was nervous um, mm. going into talking about this because it's um, 
it's so revered, but it's also mm. kind of forgotten. Mm. You know, it's it's a tough one to discuss. I'm, yeah. I'm glad we, we did it. I think catch the hustler, catch up with the hustler, and also get in touch with the color of money. Yes. Uh, which is what we'll be discussing next week. The original legacy sequel. Yeah. Directed by Martin Scorsese. Starring, returning once again as fast Eddie Felsen. Maybe not so fast. He's seen, he's a little long in the tooth these days. Slow now. We've got Paul Newman. We've got Thomas Cruise Mapatha the fourth. Amazing. Can't Being wait to see it. brought in as quick Bick Rick. <laughs> I have no idea what this movie's going to mm. be. The Hustler ends on such a note of finality. Like, mm. it's over. This is it. 23 years later, what could possibly be going on in Fast Eddie's mm. life? Why do we need to revisit it? To bring that character back. I have to know what's going on. I can't mm. wait. And, you know, we've got returning uh, Scorsese alumni as well. Thelma Schumacher, of course, mm-hmm. who is, you know, uh, Martin Scorsese's great editor, edited all his films. Uh, and Robbie Robertson providing the score, who provided the score for The Irishman that we discussed last week. Yes, love The Irishman. Hopefully Van Morrison appears on a track <laughs> and they can just sing about how to <laughs> sing, play pool. Sing as Minnesota Fats. <laughs> you chalk up the cue. And you hit that ball into a pocket. Yeah, now you're a hustler. You're a hustler. <laughs> green, green, that's the color of money. And that's the name of this movie. The same as the felt on the table. <laughs> uh, so we're talking about color of money next week. Catch up with it. In the meantime, if you want to hear more from us, you can head over to patreon.com slash total reboot uh, to uh, hear... But uh, where we do extra bonus podcasts for you guys, where we discuss uh, many of the stars that are related to the films we're discussing on the mainstream podcast, and also uh, viewer listener suggestions. We've got like a little thread open up where we want you guys to discuss which actors, which stars you want us to kind of pick a few performances for and kind of discuss their personas. I think we did a cool job of doing like Paul Newman and Jackie Gleason in this episode as well, and Piper Laurie. But uh, we go deep on Robert De Niro in the first episode. In the second episode, uh, which we have yet to record, is about Thomas Cruise Mapatha the fourth, the star of the color of money. We've That's decided. gonna be a lot of fun. That's gonna be the next one we're gonna do. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Oh, if you're listening to this the day of release, there might be a couple of tickets left to see Cameron and I performing at uh, the Golden Age Cinema. We're going to be talking over the movie Jingle All the Way. Uh, and if you've already booked tickets to that, that's your reminder. Come on down. The show's tonight. Cameron, you've got a few things coming up though. I sure do. If anyone listening is going to Fall Festival in Lawn or in Marion Bay over New Year's, I'm performing at both of those shows. I'm hosting the comedy stage on both of those. So, fuck music. Who cares about it? It sucks. Mm -hmm. Come over to the comedy tent and watch me doing stand-up comedy with people like Jen Fricker and Reese Nicholson. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, also, I'm coming to Brisbane the 9th, 10th, and 11th of January. I'm mm-hmm. headlining at the Sit Down Comedy Club. So come along to that. It'll be a lot of fun. It's... Sit down or fuck off. You'll be sitting down. I'll be standing up. Mm-hmm. That's the way that we've decided to do it in stand-up comedy. And it would be strange if it were the other way around. It would be freaking annoying and if weird. If you were some little schmunker sitting on the floor and everyone's standing around you, strange. I'd freak out. And uh, also, I'm uh, hosting the Sydney Comedy Store on the 23rd, 24th, and 25th mm-hmm. of January. I love hosting there. It's one of my favorite clubs in the country. 
and I love to fuck around. So if you want to come and see me fuck around doing new jokes, yeah. come to those dates. I'll put all this stuff up on Instagram over the next week or so. That's kind of it. Yeah, one other thing. Um, we got some nice... A nice thing happened to us this week mm. where uh, Finding Drago, the podcast that we made for the ABC, which was our dream project that we worked very hard on uh, for quite some time, uh, that many of you have probably already heard, but if you haven't heard it, uh, this will freaking push you over the line, I'm sure. Mm. We were named by Junkie, the online newspaper in Australia, as one of the best podcasts of the entire decade. It's crazy. Best and most influential. Well, I don't think we've seen our influence yet, but you know. I reckon we have. Mm? I think it's out there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe even on the same list. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple of others on that list that I think took a leaf or two mm. from the Finding Drago book. But um, uh, it's a great, it's such an honor yeah. to be mentioned on that list. Some of our heroes are on there. Especially like, you know, there's a couple of podcasts in particular I think would re- really inspire us along the way. Like uh, Paul Shear's podcast yep. uh, with June Diane Rayfall and Jason Manzukas, mm-hmm. How Did This Get Made is probably the f- like one of the first podcasts that really got me excited about. Yeah, me too. Me too. That and, of course, You Talk and You Too to me was... In many ways, a blueprint for mic check. Yeah, if, <laughs> so, if if that podcast didn't exist, mic check wouldn't no exist. No way. So it's and very then finding cool. Drago probably wouldn't F- exist. Finding either. Drago made it onto a list with both of those things. Yeah, um, there's a couple of other Australian ones on there. It burns mm. by Mark Fennell and Snowball by Ollie Wards and ABC. Mm-hmm. Listen to those if you haven't listened to them. And also, if you're not in Australia, there's another Australian podcast on there that you can't get in Australia anymore, but you can still get access to it. It's a podcast called Teacher's Pet mm. that uh, the Australian did here. It's like there's still a court case going on in this country, which is why you just can't get access to yeah. it anymore. But if you're overseas, it's a really good podcast. It was happening while we were making Finding Drago. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of stuff is what we based <laughs> the feeling of ours on. Yeah, definitely. It's a... Uh... It's a really interesting kind of true crime mm. story that it's exciting when it's sad because yeah. the court case is still going and what happened mm. was bad, but it's exciting when a podcast gets pulled because yeah. it may influence a jury or... <laughs> yes, which is why we uh, incorporated that into our little hack on the phone hacks podcast <laughs> a couple yeah. of months ago. It's kind of, yeah, it's interesting. Remember when it happened with Underbelly out mm. here? And it was only available in Sydney. Yeah, you couldn't I had buy to it. send it down to my cousins in Melbourne. Really? And none of us liked it. The show was not good. No, I didn't like it. It was either. so boring. It was so boring. Um, also, mic check. Keep your eye on that stream. Yeah, there yeah, might yeah, be a little something hopping into your stocking. So, keep that stocking open and horny. Or whatever in the new year you can place a <laughs> gift into. Um, you can catch me on Instagram at I am Cameron James. I'm on Twitter on the same thing, but I barely use it. Lex? I'm on Twitter at This Is Alexi and on Instagram at This Is Alexi as well. Um, I use both, but, you know, fairly. I use them fairly. Yeah, he uses them both I use fairly. Use. Now, before we leave, I'd mm-hmm. love for you to give me a rumination on Paul Newman's eyes. Oh, good God. Paul Newman's eyes are the bluest thing since Watto. Yeah. The toy Darian from The Phantom Menace. Yeah. Who's one of the most famously blue beings. Sure. I look into Paul Newman's eyes and all I see back looking up at me is someone telling me that mind tricks don't work on them, only money. <laughs> Two little Wattos. <laughs> Two little Wattos. One Watto, one Dr. Manhattan. The most beautiful lies of all time. 